At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward, even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. You're listening to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast with Karen McMahon. We invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience. Heal your heart while refining your character and enable you to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. Even if they remarried and moved on, they want to continuously punish this other person for some perceived wrongdoing. And so that's what's motivating them. And so in that case, it's it's like this perpetual domestic violence where, and usually the, the alienated parent left the relationship because it was abusive, right? And moms and dads are just as likely to be alienated in my research when I use national samples um, of surveys of people in the U.S. and Canada, um, they're just as likely, there's no gender differences in who's likely to be a victim of violence uh, or this kind of violence. And so they leave the relationship usually because it was psychologically abusive or physically abusive or both. And then unfortunately, because they have a child with this person, the abuse just continues. And they're used, they use then the child to continue as a weapon to do that. You're listening to our series on divorcing a narcissist and high conflict divorce. If you've felt emotionally battered in your marriage and now feel like you're failing again because an amicable divorce is simply not possible, this series is for you. Designed to honor the complex, emotionally tumultuous set of circumstances you're facing, we provide a playbook, a deep level of guidance and support to bolster you through and beyond the divorce process. Our guests include mental health professionals, attorneys, court-appointed experts for the children, and more. Welcome back. Today we address one of the most heart-wrenching and complex challenges faced by some parents navigating high-conflict marriages and divorces. Parental alienation describes a process through which a child becomes estranged from a parent as a result of the psychological manipulation of another parent. The child's estrangement may manifest as fear, disrespect, or hostility toward the alienated parent. Parental alienation is a form of child abuse. It is also abusive to the alienated parent. I'm thrilled to have a well-known parental alienation expert with us today to discuss what it is and is not, how it impacts the children and the alienated parent, and what you can do about it if you're faced with this tragic situation. Dr. Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Harmon, 
has a PhD in social psychology and regularly conducts trainings for legal and mental health professionals on parental alienation and serves as an expert witness and consultant on civil and criminal cases involving parental alienation and other forms of family violence. Dr. Harmon is the author of Parents Acting Badly, How Institutions and Society Promote the Alienation of Children from Their Loving Families. And her TED Talk on parental alienation has been widely viewed and can be found in our show notes. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, this is, you know, this is such a heart-wrenching topic and situation that so many face. Before we dive into exactly what it is and all that you're going to share, I understand that you have uh, some personal experience with that. Can you just share a little bit with our listeners? Yes. So I became interested in studying this topic and changing my whole research focus because it's something I've seen happen to a lot of people close to me, uh, as well as in my own marriage, uh, seeing it with my husband and his children in my role as a step-parent. And so I understand the agony and the frustration of first not knowing what's going on, and then the excitement of learning, wow, there's a name for what we're do- what, what we're experiencing, and then the letdown of understanding that there's very little uh, public awareness about it or professional awareness about it and what to do about it. Uh, and then the you know frustration of not being able to get resources um, when you are dealing with it. So that's what inspired me to do the work I'm doing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so great to find people like you. I've been uh, doing divorce coaching for about a decade. And when I started, I, I, I had never heard of parental alienation. It was when my first client started talking about his situation and I started doing some research. And I think when we chatted earlier, I even asked you, like, how new is this, this whole concept of parental alienation? It's not new. It's been around a long time. Um, Family courts have been talking about it for over 150 years. There's case law talking about alienation of affection and interference of parent-child relationships and, um, you know, parents poisoning a child against another parent. So that's been documented for a long time. Uh, I mean, and sometimes it just takes a while for the mental health field and other people to give it a name to actually be able to better um, characterize what it is. Uh, and so, you know, in our research today, um, there's been a lot of advances over the last probably 15, 20 years on the research on the topic, um, we have a good grasp of what it is and what it's not. Um, we're starting to now um, test theories and other types of things uh, to better understand it. Uh, so the science on it is also advancing rapidly. Um, there's lots of people all over the world studying it now, which is exciting. It's exciting to kind of be at the forefront of it at the moment. Yeah, such an important topic, topic to be researching. So, so those listening are most likely struggling with what they at least think is parental alienation. And so let's begin with what is parental alienation and what are the other types of alienations and how do they differ? So I think that's a good start. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what parental alienation is. 
Um, for example, you know, a parent will say, well, because the other parent didn't tell me about this doctor appointment, they're alienating me. No, <laughs> that's not what it means. So parental alienation refers to an issue with the child uh, where a child has started to or has fully resisted or refused contact or a relationship with another parent for unjustified, false, or exaggerated reasons. So it refers to a problem with the child that is, a, that is an outcome associated with behaviors, most usually associated with the behaviors of a parent. And so parental alienating behaviors are behaviors that can make that happen and are typically the, the primary reason why it happens. Uh, it doesn't have to be a parent, it could be a grandparent, an aunt, uncle, or a combination of all these <laughs> family members doing it. Um, and what's, what's important to understand is that the behaviors, in order to be considered a parental alienating behavior, it needs to be a pattern of behavior, of clusters of behaviors that a parent or parental figure does over time with intent to harm. So you can't just take one behavior in isolation and say, look, they're alienating me. That's not how you define a parental alienating behavior. It has to be a lot of different behaviors that a parent is doing with the intent to undermine the relationship. So you can't, you know, if a parent just, you know, no parent's perfect. People make mistakes all the time. Just because maybe you badmouth another parent or something like that, it doesn't mean you're alienating your child. What what would make you an alienator is if you're doing that, or you're you know restricting contact, you're badmouthing the parent constantly to the child, you're doing this with the intent to align the child or get the child to favor you or to reject the other parent. That is when comes um, alienation. Right. So, so let's take a step back then for a minute. Um, before we get more into the behavior, can you share some of the other uh, ways that uh, being disconnected from a parent show up that aren't parental alienation, like estrangement? And you had mentioned a few others to me. So let's let's just kind of list those and how they're different, and then dive into this behavior. Yes. So, parental alienation is different than estrangement. I know you can use that term earlier, and I want to clarify that this is very different than estrangement. Uh, estrangement is when a child is resisting contact because, um, because of the parent-child relationship with the, directly that relationship with the person that they're rejecting. Uh, so for example, if a parent is abusive or has some mental health issues that make it make their parenting um, kind of insufficient, right, or, or very um, negative for the child. Uh, or the child even sometimes can have some major issues that, that interfere with the parent-child relationship, maybe mental health issues or things. And that is what we would call estrangement. So that would be where the child has some sort of um, disconnect or the relationship is strained and not close um, because of that direct relationship between those two independent of everybody else, but independent of the other parent, independent of all the other things that are going around. So that is a strange. Um, and what you okay. find um, with those, well, I can get into how it, they look different. Children who are estranged look very different in their behaviors towards the parent than people, children who are alienated. Um, I can 
Can you just elaborate just a little bit on that? And I don't want to get too far off track, but I think this is very important so that the people who are listening, our listeners can really hone in on what they're dealing with. When a child's estranged, usually they don't have persistent, consistent, and frequent rejection of a parent. So children who are estranged, meaning like they were likely abused or maltreated or the parent is just inconsistent in their um, love and affection or they have substance abuse issues or something, the child, you know, obviously they may have legitimate reasons for being cautious to spend time with them. However, you'll also see that child feeling very ambivalent towards them because they still love them on, on a deep level. They still want that parent to turn around and love them, right, and be a good parent. So that child will often defend that parent. They will want to spend time with them and, you know, win their affections um, because children have a desire to be loved by both parents, right? They love them. Uh, And so with alienated children, though, you'll see them reject a parent, again, because they're false, exaggerated, or um, fabricated reasons. Um, And so their rejection of that parent is frequent, it's consistent all the time, <laughs> uh, it's persistent, so extended periods of time, it's usually way out of proportion, the reasons for doing it are way out of proportion for anything that that parent has ever done. Like a parent will, for example, discipline a child, you know, put them in time out, or they take their phone away for a week, punish them for something. That's normal parenting. You would do that to put boundaries on a child, but, you know, keep them safe. Alienated children will take that kind of information and use it to justify why they never want to see them. So you see this really exaggerated um, justification, or they'll reject them for really trivial reasons. Um, There's a whole psychology behind that I can go into later, but about why that happens. But that's how you can tell the difference between those two types of children. So one sounds much more extreme than the other, both in its consistency and its um, reactivity and uh, and that out of proportion part. It sounds like that is really the extreme behavior. Yeah, and, you know, and there's different levels of severity for children who are alienated. Like my, we, we characterize them as mild, moderate, and severe. And it doesn't mean that mild is any more serious than severe or less serious. <laughs> I liken it to the staging of cancer, where stage one, it's important to intervene early, but it doesn't mean it's any less serious than you know, stage four, because it's all cancer, right? Um, and so um, even you might see mild forms of resistance early on, where the child is being manipulated to start rejecting the parent. Um, and it's hard for a lot of uh, mental health providers to identify when that's happening, because alienating parents are very manipulative and very persuasive and charming and convincing. And so they're very good at making um, other people think it's the alienated parent's fault for the child's rejection. They're very good at that. And so in the milder stages or the earlier stages of alienation, it can be hard for some providers who don't understand the problem and they misdiagnose it. Um, Now, another form of kind of family conflict that is very common are what we call loyalty conflicts. Uh, These are where two parents just don't get along very well and they try to bring the kid into their conflict. So the kid is essentially kind of put in the middle and they're fighting, kind of battling it out. 
Um, that kind of dynamic is very different than alienation as well. In that case, the child is in this what we call a loyalty bind where they feel like they're being pulled in both directions by both parents who they love. So the child hasn't resisted contact with one, right? They're, they're, they're kind of in the middle of both. And that's a very different uh, power dynamic between the parents. It can be abusive, but it's not like the kind of abuse you see with a person who has all the power, right? All the custody, who's controlling the whole dynamic. Um, that's, that's what we see with parental alienation. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say that if if both parents are acting in, and these are my words, not yours, but unhealthy behaviors and not child-centric, you have that loyalty conflict. But when there is a significant and severe power imbalance, that's one of the tells that it's parental exactly. alienation. And this is where, I mean, I know even some scientists who get this wrong and, uh, like, it, they they assume that parental that all family conflict is reciprocated, um, whereas we know that from domestic violence research that that's not true. You know, there's different there's lots of there's there's intimate terrorists like who are you know the batterers who are the primary perpetrators, uh, and you have a victim right. who has very little power. There's other kinds of domestic violence where both parents or or both people are equally you know engaging in in violence like throwing things and pushing each other. Um, and that's a very different power dynamic uh, and very different right. treatment for both different both times, right? Um, and that's the same thing with parental alienation. Um, with, if you have both parents acting badly, that is what we would consider a loyalty conflict. And the behaviors that they are doing aren't healthy, right? They're not, they're not good. Um, and they're very toxic for a child. It's not good for a child to be in the middle of that. And that's what we would call the typical high conflict family, right? You know, yes. but, but yes. with alienation, it's 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 a misnomer to use that term because you have one perpetrator. You have another parent who maybe acts out of frustration, self-defense, or you know, just sort of, you know, you know, just because they have no other choice, right? They're they're kind of stuck in a corner and they have to do something and respond to something the other parent is doing. But it doesn't mean that they are reciprocating. It doesn't mean that they have the same power as the other parent to do anything different. And so right. there's a big difference so, between the two kinds of families. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the experience of the alienated parent. I think we can go even a little bit deeper here so that people understand if that if that's their experience. What is that? Uh, well, it's it's... As I mentioned, this is a form of family violence where it's not just child abuse, it's also domestic violence because what's motivating the alienating parent, I'd like to think that they're not trying to abuse their children, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm optimistic that that's not what they're intending to do. But what they're intending to do is essentially erase or get rid of the other parent. You know, they want that other parent gone. You know, sometimes they remarry, they want to erase them and move on. They try to terminate the other parent's parental rights. They try to change the child's name to whoever they're now married to. Um, you know, they, 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 they want to eliminate this other parent or eliminate their influence. And sometimes it's just because they want nothing to do with them. Other times it's because they're so angry and they cannot get rid of their hostility. Even if they've remarried and moved on, they want to continuously punish this other person for some perceived wrongdoing. 
And so that's what's motivating them. And so in that case, it's it's like this perpetual domestic violence where, and usually the, the alienated parent left the relationship because it was abusive, right? And moms and dads are just as likely to be alienated in my research when I use national samples, um, surveys of people in the US and Canada. Um, they're just as likely, there's no gender differences in who's likely to be a victim of violence uh, or this kind of violence. And so, they leave the relationship usually because it was psychologically abusive or physically abusive or both. And then unfortunately, because they have a child with this person, the abuse just continued. And they're used, they use then the child to continue as a weapon to do that. Um, and so, yeah, their, their ultimate goal is to have all control, just like a batterer, their other goal is to have all control. And so they will do lots of different behaviors and things in order to get and maintain that control. And so the, the targeted parent or the alienated parent, then their, their experience is one of gradual disempowerment. They start to feel like they have no say or control. They can't parent their children anymore. The children then become very obstinate and um, you know, disrespectful. They, they don't perceive them as an authority figure anymore. Um, the pain that parents feel because their child hates them for things that never happened, right? or that are completely exaggerated, uh, and they have no power to correct it, because um, everything that they try to do or say, the child perceives as a threat to their worldview, um, and so the child just rejects them more. So it's a very painful experience for a parent, because if they haven't lost all contact in, a, in severe cases, they're having to live with a child who believes horrible things about them, uh, and there's nothing they can do to correct it. Um, and it's a very difficult position because they often feel like they can't discipline their child because it's used against them. Um, you know, the child will say, oh, dad, you know, spanked me or something. And then, oh, they're abusive, right? So they can't use physical discipline. Otherwise, you know, or corporal punishment, otherwise that's used against them. If you take their phone away, then the kid says, I don't want to be around you anymore because you're abusive, even though it's not an abusive strategy, right? So the parent becomes powerless and it's a very painful feeling i mean it sounds excruciating and and you know we talk about divorcing narcissists all the time and and the difficulty in that and on this level to to be so disempowered from being able to love your child uh be with your child, yeah, discipline your child. I mean, that, that just sounds, and it, it sounds so incredibly hard. And so if, if, if our listeners are in that position, um, what can they do? Uh, well, one of the, if, if it's hopefully early enough, the number one thing is to try to maintain any semblance of power you have. If you have shared custody, don't think it's going to get better by, you know, giving over more time to the other parent, right? Um, enforce and hold on to every scrap of time you have with your child. It, there's a few reasons for that. A, it helps you maintain some power as a parent, right? Um, but it also allows that child, even if it's really awful parenting time because the kid is just not good, but it can help to make it very clear to the child that you do care about them and that you, it can maybe, hopefully, potentially, if it's mild or moderate levels, 
that time with you can help offset some of the negative time because the other parent is very abusive, right? It's a very abusive dynamic that's created by that parent and that child is being abused in that relationship. It will appear like they're overly close and they're best friends, but it's a very um, uh, unhealthy attachment with that parent because they have all so is that a, is it a fear? I mean, is there a fear-based attachment? And I want to talk about this question in in a minute. But but that attachment is it fear-based? It is. Well, so imagine from a child's perspective, they have been manipulated and led to essentially reject the other parent, um, and that in, in psychologically, the child now has a dissonance, or you got cognitive dissonance. They love this parent, they previously had a good relationship with them, and now they hate them. So, and you know, they're not mentally, they're, they're, they haven't finished developing, <laughs> like the, they don't have the cognitive capacity of an adult. So you have to imagine what it's like from a child's perspective, where they lack the ability to do third person kind of perspective taking. They can't do as, as abstract reasoning as well as an adult, and mm. people often forget that. Because alienated children, and a lot of children, will appear to be very mature for their age. But it doesn't matter. Their brains haven't still haven't stopped developing <laughs> biologically. <laughs> they may appear that way because they've often been empowered, overly empowered by an alienating parent. They're treated as an equal. We call this like adultification. They're often treated as an equal to, and kids like that. Right? They like to be told information that they shouldn't know because it makes them feel informed and it makes them feel powerful. However, when they're treated as an equal, it's very unhealthy for them developmentally because they don't have the cognitive capacity to understand the impact of their decisions on their life or how it affects other people. They don't have that ability. And so, and I see this all the time, courts will let kids decide when they want to see the other parent, they'll decide when you know, they have a say, but in who they want to live with, that's the worst form of child abuse to put a child in that position, especially one that's been manipulated um, by a parent, because they, there's no way that that child has enough information to make an informed decision. Um, and they're not developmentally old enough to understand that or to understand the impact of their decision. And so... And a 17 year old, <laughs> I would argue we should have people involved with, with sorry, with people until they're 25, because that's when the brain stops developing. <laughs> so, right. Um, but um, I, I'm sorry, I'm going off track. I can easily go down. Well, no, that's okay. We're, we'll bounce around and I'll, I'll bring it all back. So, so as we're talking about this, though, what's the impact on a child who has experienced years of this manipulating uh, that okay. causes them to, to reject? Yes, I remember where I was going and it ties right to your question here. So, so from a child's perspective, they've experienced this. They have to cognitively um, explain why they're rejecting this parent they formerly loved, right? So psychologically, they develop this split. So one parent becomes, they, that parent must be horrible, right, in their mind. You know, emotionally, they say that person is terrible. So we see this polarization of attitudes where the alienator is all good and the alienated parent is all bad. Uh, and, and that's unique for alienated children. That's not something you see with estranged children. Estranged children have ambivalence. Right? So then what happens is the child has rejected half of their identity. They've rejected this parent who they formerly loved. 
And now in their mindset, the only person they have left is the other parent. And unfortunately, that other parent is very abusive. Right? And it, it's a very um, abusive dynamic. And it is a very insecure attachment that's formed. So the child is completely dependent on this person for outcomes. That's a function of being a child, right? Even though they're kind of treated by that parent oftentimes as an equal, and they shouldn't be because they're not an equal. And so they develop this overly close relationship, which we call uh, enmeshment. And for adolescents in particular, this is damaging because their whole task, developmental social social developmental task is to form their own identity. Right? That's their only job really at that age is to find out who they are and who they're going to be. And an alienated child is not afforded that opportunity. They are in this relationship with a parent who's very abusive and they're very dependent on them for every outcome. And if they don't toe the line of what that parent wants, that parent can withdraw all their love and affection. And it's a, so in that sense, it's a very abusive, insecure um, dynamic. And so that's why you see these children defend an alienating parent to the, I mean, they'll defend them to the grave essentially because they, it's too terrifying for them to lose that parent because they already feel like they lost another one. So from a child's perspective, this is why they defend the alienator so strongly because in their mind, that's all they have left. Yeah, it's like it's like their life raft. They're holding on for dear life. And and I'm going a little astray here, but I, I can't help but asking. So so this is the development at an early age, whether it's you know, grade school, teenagers. How does that do you guys have research on how that impacts that child as they enter adulthood and just enter relationships? Yeah, Amy Baker and um uh I think it's have published some data um, over the last few years looking at adults who were alienated as children, right? Um, so they're usually college students who are now away from home and they're, you know, trying to form their own relationships. And a lot of them really struggle with developing relationships, um, new romantic relationships. Um, they often have a lot of anxiety and depression, suicidality. So they have a lot of the same symptoms you would see with another any other child who's been abused. So anything you would see in a child who's been physically abused or emotionally abused, they have the same outcomes. Um, they they're often get into relationships, sadly, that are very much like the unhealthy dynamic that they experienced with the alienator. So they develop these very kind of codependent, um, overly close relationships with partners who then have a lot of the same characteristics as the alienator. Um, or sometimes the children develop their own personality disorders as well. <laughs> and then they, they then become the alienator in their next relationship. Um, because the, this form of family violence is intergenerationally transmitted. Um, so essentially, a lot of times parents are doing it because it was modeled for them, right? Or, um, you know, or when, I, yeah, and I've, I've, I've encountered a lot of targeted parents who realize after they've lost their children that they themselves have been alienated. Right, you know, it came to the realization right. that the same thing had happened to them when they were a child, when they looked back at their own parents, and they didn't realize it until it happened to them as adults and with their own children. That's like a double painful, you know, doubly painful realization. Um, 
Yeah, and of course, so many of our experiences as children in our family of origin have a way of um, uh, raising up in as adults in in our relationships. And you you're just describing psychic splits and insecurity, and I'm thinking attachment disorder and codependence. Or um, I had read someplace that the alienating parent also could be coming from some serious psychological uh, trauma in their in their past as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, most of the people who alienate their children, I mean, especially the, so there's two kinds. Uh, Douglas Darnell has published that if you're in a mild stage of alienation that doesn't really get too severe, um, usually they call those parents the naive alienators, meaning that you know, they have some unresolved issues that from their own childhood, but they they're just not aware that they're doing you know, these behaviors, like gatekeeping behaviors, like they may not realize that, you know, by making the child feel guilty about going to the other parent, that that's it's actually hurting them, right? Um, but then as it gets more moderate and severe, those alienators usually are kind of more active or pathological alienators. And those are the ones typically who have more um, unresolved issues from their own childhood, trauma, um, you know, unresolved sexual abuse um, that they've experienced and that they're now kind of projecting onto the, the child to be overly protective of them. And um, they uh, often have personality disorders like narcissism, borderline personality, antisocial personality disorders. And so in that sense, it becomes very difficult to intervene because the parents are so unhealthy. So, so let's let's go back if we could. Um, okay, two questions. You mentioned gatekeeper behavior. Can you just define what that is? So, gatekeeping behavior. There's a whole research literature on this that's even independent of parental alienation. But it's one type of alienating behavior that can be used to try to minimize contact with the uh, child and the alienating alienated parent. So they will, for example. Um, um, kind of interfere with visitation. They, they will say, oh, they don't want to come over this weekend, or they will decide, you know, that they don't feel that they're going to be safe over there, so they're not going to allow them to go over there. Or let's say the parent has to work, and so they have their new romantic partner go to pick up the kids. Well, the alienating parent will say, no, the court order says only you can pick them up, <laughs> even though it's just another adult, but they're using any excuse to try to keep the child away, right? Um, they could also involve not um, encouraging the children to make, you know, answer phone calls of the other parent, not relaying messages to the child, essentially controlling the access, whether it's through phone, text messages, um, or in person, they're controlling that access. Now, I've heard some people, even colleagues, even, you know, uh, other scientists I know say, well, some gatekeeping or some alienating behaviors are justified, meaning like, you should restrict access when the other parent is abusive. But unfortunately, they are conflating the words because that, that wouldn't be an alienating behavior. That would actually be a rational thing to do with a court order. Right? You would go to court, you'd say this parent's abusive, I need to restrict their parenting time. The court would say, yes, we agree that parent is abusive. That is a healthy gatekeeping behavior because you're protecting the child from somebody who is and has been found to be abusive. But if a parent decides right. to just do this unilaterally, 
just says, yeah, I don't think that they need to talk to mom or dad today. Or I think that they're abusive. No one believes me, but I think they are. So I don't think they should go over there. That's, that's an alienating behavior. Particularly if well, they have to be doing it with other things, right? They're usually having to, they're usually engaging in a lot of other behaviors, like bad mouthing the parent. So, so there's a big difference between what would be a normal, like a, a gatekeeping behavior that you would have to do because the other parent is abusive and you sought the right legal remedies to do it versus a parent who just decides that they just don't think they, they you know, in their mind, they've come up to this, you know, you can have, you know, someone parent just not think it's that important. You'd have another parent who just has delusions or fantasies about things that this is again, when the severe stages or the severe alienation, usually it's a parent who has their own unresolved trauma that they are projecting onto their kid and they have these beliefs that abuse is happening when it's been unfounded every time it's investigated, right? <laughs> you know? So those, yeah. are, those are really kind of oh, really horrible cases because unfortunately then sometimes a child has been um, led to believe that abuse happened. It's bad enough to be abused as a child, but bad enough, it's even worse to believe abuse happened when it didn't. Yeah, and that that leads me to my next question. One of the things you and I were talking about offline was um, the various types of false allegations that are used. And so you're saying one is to say the other parent, the alienated parent is abusive. What are a few of the other um, typical false allegations that you've, that you see? Well, you'll often see people say, well, they're neglecting their children or, you know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, they're, they have a mental health problem, so they shouldn't be with their kids, even though it's never been diagnosed. Um, you'll even see people who say they're being alienated when they're not. You know, so, so let's say, for example, um, a parent goes to court because there was abuse, right? And they, they ask the court for um, an emergency protection order because they found that, you know, in CPS or child services investigates and they find that there's concerns and they get a restriction in parenting time. So like you get supervised visits. Sometimes you'll have a parent who will say, well, you're alienating me because of that. You know, and that's a misuse of the term because <laughs> that's not what, it, what happens, right? What's happening is the parent took right. protective action and because there was actual abuse. Like you would never say a child's been alienated if there was actual abuse. That is not a term that you would ever apply. Again, for a child to be considered alienated, it has to be for false, exaggerated, or you know, fabricated reasons. So we would never use that terminology. And so it always, it always like, you know, makes my it makes me so frustrated when I hear people claim they've been abused when they haven't been, or claim they've been alienated when they haven't been, because it undermines protections for people who actually are experiencing those problems. You know, if you actually are abused. Right. People are going to be less likely to believe you if there's a lot of other people saying that, you know, making false claims about it. Um, same with alienation. If you say you're being alienated, no one's going to believe you if a lot of other people are lying about it or don't understand it. So I'm hoping that maybe hopefully today this will maybe be more clear to people about the difference between these kinds of family violence and to understand when to use the right terminology. Because terminology right. is so important. You know, like if we say high conflict, like again, like going back to that other point, we say high conflict, we can't, we shouldn't use that term to describe alienation, you know, because it, it, it assumes that both people are responsible. 
whereas you know it would that would apply for a loyalty contract, right? So we need to make sure to use right, the right, right terminology so that people don't get misunderstandings about who's responsible for what. We're there right when you need us the most. And we make sure you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you between calls to be more effective. I was very fortunate to find Journey Beyond Divorce. I would go searching for any piece of information that could either A, give me more knowledge about the divorce process itself, or B, could talk me down emotionally. And I found that Journey Beyond Divorce was really instrumental in providing both things, one, the guidance of the divorce process itself, as well as talking about self-maintenance and what does the individual need to do to kind of cope with it. Let us help you gain a broader perspective and determine your best next steps with our free Rapid Relief Lifeline call. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call. So let's let's shift back to this alienated parent. Um, we started talking earlier about what they could do. Uh, you had said, you know, hold on to your time by all means, uh, and you know, help to to just keep showing the child that you love them and offset that that other parent's story. Uh, one of the things I find in working with uh, people who have been uh, married to these high conflict personalities is uh, this um, delusion that if I, if I'm clear enough, and I experienced this in my own marriage, if I'm clear enough, if I'm articulate enough, if I present my case well enough, I can, I can get <clears throat> that other parent to see the error of their ways. And and that happens with my clients who just divorcing a personality disorder. I could see that being uh, being a challenge here too, where the alienated parent is trying to convince the alienating parent to change. And I would imagine that's fairly fruitless. What do you, can you speak to that? And what do you recommend? Yeah, I've seen a lot of parents say, well, if I just talk and, you know, I'll share this information on alienation and show them that it's child abuse, it'll get them to change. No, a parent who's engaging in these behaviors is often very pathological. They don't think that they're doing anything wrong. I mean, they, a lot of, mostly parents feel they're completely justified in doing what they're doing. And there's nothing you can do to change their mind about it. And again, if, if it is an alienation case, you know, this is what I'm speaking. I'm not speaking about the other kinds of conflict here. But you got to think about it just like you would think about battery. You can't go and just talk to a bully and convince them to stop bullying, right? Think of it that way. That's the same thing with an alienator. I mean, what's motivating them is power and control. And any conversation you have with them, any kind of communication you have with them, they will look at it as an opportunity to gain leverage and gain advantage. Mm -hmm. So you do not want to engage. And in fact, you know, the best thing you can ask for if you're getting a divorce in that situation is not joint custody. You would not do that if there was domestic violence, like what we're talking about here, like the, the you know, intimate battery. You would not do joint custody. You would not require mediation because what happens in mediation is these parents use it to try to prolong and delay court hearings. They use it to try to get an advantage, right? And <laughs> to try to get more uh, to use against you. Uh, so th that is, should be avoided at all costs. Um, 
And so, I mean, ultimately what you just need are very clear orders that are, you know, like um, parenting time at this particular time and place, who's in charge of pickups and drop-offs, you know, things that there's no gray area. <laughs> you want to make it as, and even when you make it the best, there's always going to be some misinterpretation. If it says pickups are going to happen at four, what happens when there's no school that day, right? Where, where do you do it, right? So you have to think through every single possible scenario that can't, that won't be manipulated by the alienating parent. You often want to have separate custody decisions. Like you don't want to give them all cust or all decision making. So then that, that changes the power dynamic, right? Um, you want to try to maintain and hold on to not just your parenting time, but the kinds of decisions you can make for your child. Um, and but and so what, what sometimes courts will do is they'll just split it so that one parent will, for example, will have education, one will have medical decisions. Um, now, if you notice that the other parent is using that decision-making in order to manipulate and get advantage, you have to try to prevent that from happening, right? And so this is where it's so it's it's horrible for the alienated parent. Because not only are you de dealing emotionally with this problem, but now you have to deal financially with the legal costs of having to protect your your time and protect your parental rights. And that's where it becomes really hard for parents because it's so expensive to do that. Um, and but you 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 have to because these parents will do anything to get all control, and it's. Um, hopefully that won't be as easy for people as, you know, people become more aware of this family dynamic and there's more right. interventions for parents right. to help. But right now, that's unfortunately the reality. But, you know, keeping, I think keeping, you know, maintaining your decision making, despite the other parent always probably trying to get it from you. Um, even if you don't ever see your children, being able to have that authority gives you leverage and gives you power. Now, if you've gotten to the point where you have none of that left, um, so important to get support. I mean, in general, always go get support. There's lots of support groups out there. There's, uh, if you type in, if you go to meetup.com and just search parental alienation, you'll find hundreds of groups <laughs> that have been formed by parents. And you're, often people are like, whoa, I had no idea there's people in my neighborhood and community who are dealing with this. Um, I used to do a group here when I had more time on my hands um, where I live. And I you know, posted out onto meetup.com and posted onto Facebook. I had a group going and that every week we have like six, seven people who would drive up from all over to come and <laughs> just to be able to talk about what was going on. So there's a lot of yeah. parents out there who, and it does, it, I mean, with COVID it's harder to do that, right? But, um, but ways you can do it, but it's so important to be able to vent, to talk about what's going on, how to navigate, how to learn which lawyers to avoid which custody evaluators to get it, which, which ones don't. Um, and you can only get that from people locally, right? You know, because you need to find out from people in your county or in your state um, who, who gets it and who doesn't, which therapists get it, which therapists don't know how to treat it. Um, I think what you're saying is so important too, because the assumption with so many is if I'm going to a matrimonial attorney, you know, they're they're and they came recommended by my, you know, my sister-in-law, or I'm going to a therapist and somebody I know used them. And I think that that piece that you're saying, which is make sure when you reach out for support that you're getting professionals who 
have an understanding and experience with this. This is very unique and it's really complicated. And you and so that local resource of support groups is great. And I would love for you, Jennifer, to to share more about resources as we begin to wrap up. Like what what else can these alienated parents do? And what resources are out there for them? Um, one advice I always give to parents when they call or when I speak to them is to get second opinions um, from different attorneys. A lot of times people are like, oh, I got a good attorney. They came recommended. but And, and you may have the best attorney, right? <laughs> but think about it. I, I, like it, I liken it to, um, let's say you get, you go to your primary care doctor, you know, for your regular, you know, your regular checkups. That person is not a specialist, right? They, they, they treat everything, right, that comes in the door. And their job is to kind of screen when there might be problems and then refer you to a specialist if you need additional testing or something like that. I liken it to that where you have an attorney, family law attorneys treat every kind of family that come in, right? <laughs> you know, they're, they're dealing with adoptions, they're dealing with, you know, just run-of-the-mill divorce with two parents who actually get along. We're dealing with, you know, custody modifications with parents who maybe don't get along great, but that's not alienation. Alienation is a very specific type of family violence. And unless you have an attorney who has a lot of experience and understands it, they may make the wrong choices about how to handle it, right? And so what I often recommend is even if you have an attorney who says they've litigated alienation cases, I recommend reaching out and just spending, you know, paying for an hour consultation fee with an attorney who this is all they do, right? <laughs> this is their specialization, just like you would for maybe a cancer doctor but to, to get a second opinion about your course of treatment. Because you're about to launch into a huge legal investment, right? It's very expensive to do any sort of legal intervention. And maybe the, there's a better way to do it. Or maybe there's an angle that you hadn't thought about or your attorney hadn't thought about because this isn't their primary area of expertise. And so, and there's a lot, there's several attorneys that I work with very closely who this is all they do. Um, there's a great website um, that was established by uh, Dr. Demosthenes Mirandos. Uh, it's called psychlaw.net, P-S-Y-C-H law.net. And it serves as a resource to help um, attorneys and parents find or, you know, kind of do legal consultation on cases that where there's more alienation concerns, um, because it is a very particular area of law. Um, there's a lot of evidentiary issues, experts and things you need to be able to handle, and not all attorneys are skilled at that. That is my number right. one um, advice because I have so many parents have their cases just wrapped up in legal battles for years because they had the wrong attorney <laughs> or they had an attorney so, who didn't get it, who didn't understand alienation. Yeah, I think that that's an, a brilliant recommendation. And the psychlaw.net, I will put in the show notes so that you can find it there after the episode's over. Um, there's also some really good self-help books like Amy Baker. Dr. Amy Baker has a website. Um, I think it's DrAmyJBaker.com or something like that. Um, if you Google her, you can find it. She has some great books um, written for parents who are, are dealing with alienation. Um, you know, how to be a parent in that kind of context, how to get the support. She also published a great book called Breaking the Ties That Bind, 
where it was based on some qualitative research she did with children who had been alienated um, and their experiences reflecting back now that they've reconciled or kind of come, you know, realize what had happened. And it's a fascinating book, especially for a parent to read, because you can kind of see from the child's perspective what they were going through. And one of the questions she asks them is what could have made it different? You know, what, what could have, what could the other parent have done? And their answers are not uniform. They all had different answers. So, you know, there is no one solution to this. Well, that does sound like a nice insight for a parent who's currently struggling with this. And and I, I wanted to ask you, so you said second opinion with attorneys. Now, there's, um, there's also the uh, attorney for the children. There's the custody evaluator. I would imagine that all of the different professionals that are pulled into this type of a case, uh, the same rule would apply, would you agree? Yeah, that's a tricky part because you can have, for example, a custody evaluator who understands parental alienation and they identify it. However, they may make the wrong recommendations for treatment <laughs> because maybe they don't stay up to date on a lot of the recent you know, research that's been published or what you know, conferences, there's lots of talks about what are best practices for treatment and approaches. Um, if they're not up to date on that, they will often make the entirely wrong recommendation and then the case goes nowhere, right? Um, and you don't need a psychologist to diagnose parental alienation to have the court recognize it. In fact, I, I'm doing a study right now where we're finding that in most of the appeals cases in the U.S., like almost, I would estimate almost half of them, the court decided on their own without some third person to figure it out for them. You know, the court can figure that out on their own. They don't need somebody to diagnose it to do anything. So. Because it's so right, blatant. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, I, when I do expert witness work, my role is often just to go in and educate the court and say, all right, the attorneys are going to present all this information. How does the court interpret it? Right. And so my job is to essentially just say, you know, I don't even have to know anything about the case. I can just say, here's what you look for. Here's how you assess it. Here's how you differentiate it from other kinds of abuse, right? <laughs> you know, here's how you can tell the difference. And so, you know, here's how you treat it. And here's why that works. Here's why this other thing doesn't work. And then it's up to the, the lawyers to present the information that will allow the court to see on their own whether this case matches what would be considered alienation or not. Right? And so I think it's extremely useful. It's extremely powerful because, you know, that a lot of family courts, you know, and I educate, you know, judges and lawyers and, and mental health providers a lot on this. And it's I think, really useful for them because then they, they understand, you know, better the kind of professionals they need in the case, you know, what kinds of uh, treatment providers do they need <laughs> to, to work on the case. And, right. Um, and I can tell you, you know, oftentimes that, you know, lawyers will ask me hypotheticals, you know, without knowing the case, ask me hypotheticals of, you know, is there a reason, like, for example, if the children have been in therapy for a whole year, would you expect progress, you know, like, no, <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't expect progress, and here's why, you know, because you're not treating the problem, the problem is that they're still in an abusive right. relationship, so, um, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of what, you know, I do, um, but, and so it doesn't, you don't have to have, you know, $100,000 to go and hire all these experts to do that. And the issue is sometimes when you have another, when the other person has unlimited resources and they are trying to essentially run you into the ground, which a lot of you do. 
the financial abuse. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this. Um, there's Jennifer has a TED talk that I highly recommend you guys listen to, and it'll be posted. It's posted in the show notes for you. Is there another resource for just that alienated parent to get fully educated? They've listened to the show. They'll listen to your TED talk. Is there something else that you would recommend in terms of resources for them to truly understand uh, this dynamic? Um, there are some other resources. Um, there's uh, the Parental Alienation Study Group, uh, PASG.info. So you can go to that website. It's a kind of a resource page. There's members. You can, it's free to become a member. Um, most of the members are um, experts like clinicians or lawyers or people in, working all over the world. We have people from, I think, almost 50-something countries, <laughs> um, and there's and parents can also join, and there's resources on that page for parents, uh, and there's updates on, on books, you know, so you can see all the books that have been published there. Uh, Dr. Bill Burnett has access there to a database that he developed at Vanderbilt University of all the published research and any papers on parental alienation, so all of that is accessible, so, um, and if you've come across an article that you really want that you are not able to get because the, there's a paywall, you know, meaning like <laughs> the journal won't let you get it. Um, I recommend contacting the authors. They'll always be more than happy to share it with you. Um, we just can't, I can't public, I can't often post my articles because there's copyright issues, but people can always email me and ask for my articles and I, I share them freely. Um, so there's lots of places you can get information. Um, like that website is a great resource for that. There's also a good discussion board. So once you're a member, it's, it's free. Um, there's a discussion board where you can post things and you can see even debates among the experts on there. And they'll, they'll talk about, hey, is there a good attorney in Los Angeles? I need somebody who understands alienation. Um, that sounds like a great yeah. resource. Um, that, that too is posted in the show notes. So is, is there anything that we, is there anything else that the alienated parent can do? And is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Ooh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, I think, I think probably the biggest thing is, you know, that I get sometimes emails from people after they maybe came across my TED talk and they're like, oh my gosh, I just realized this has been happening to me. What can I do? Um, there's, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot that can be done. Um, I think the most important thing, and this is always the important thing to remember, is in this, in this kind of abuse, if this is what's happening in your family, you are the healthier parent. And you have to stay healthy, because at some point, hopefully your child will come around. And people are always going to give advice, like, oh, they're going to, your child's going to come around. When they get older, they'll figure it out. That's really bad advice, because that's not always the case. Um, we don't know how often children and what triggers them to reunify with a parent. Um, that the, the book I described that, that Amy Baker wrote, um, Breaking the Ties That Bind, give a lot of good examples of how children came to the realization that they were being alienated. But you can't, I mean, you want to maintain hope, but you can't just expect it to happen when they turn 18. Or you can't expect things like that to occur. Um, and so I think it's just so important to do everything you can to stay healthy. And it's so hard when you have this kind of loss because it's what we call an ambiguous loss. It's sort of like a child that's disappeared 
and you don't know where they are. You don't know if they're dead. You don't know, you know, what's happened to them. Um, and in this case, you know what's happened to them, and but yet you can't ever grieve them, right? Because you're always having to remain hopeful and receptive if they come back. So my best advice is just do everything you can to, and at some point you may have to kind of walk away. I mean, you tell the child, I'll be here if you want to come back, but I cannot for my own sanity, <laughs> you know, I, you know, to maintain your, I, I have some colleagues who had to do that. It was the most painful thing I've ever done, but now that now their child, children are reaching out to them two years later, two years of awful, you know, loss and grief, but for her own sanity, right. she had to do it. Um, other times you don't have to necessarily go to that extreme, but it's so important because if you lose it, who's that child going to have, you know? Yeah, that's such a good point. And if that child reaches out um, or when that child reaches out, you want to be in a healthy frame, heart and head. And so I, I think that I just want to... Um, I just want to state it again, the, the, the value of groups is incredible. We have so many divorce support groups where just hearing the other people and knowing that you're not alone and sometimes making connections with someone that you can process with offline and getting, getting the, the therapeutic support that you need. This is so devastating to the psyche and to make sure that you're investing in yourself so that you can be healthy and responsive when and if that child comes back to you. I, I, I just oh, want to restate good, that. Um, point. Um, there's another great movie that was, that was released last year um, called Erasing Family. If you haven't seen it yet, must watch. I think it's it's available on Vimeo and um, I think it's on. I forgot what other sources, but you can find it there. Um, it's directed by Ginger Gentile, who um, she had published. She had done another movie called Erasing Father or Erasing Dad down, but it was in Spanish. She, she did that one down in Argentina, um, but this one's Erasing Family. It's in English <laughs> and it was filmed here. Um, I'm in it, so you can see some interviews with me in the in the movie. Um, but there, I was on a panel with her once at one of the screenings for the film. And one of, she's also, she's an alienated child. So she's an adult now. Um, she didn't realize she was until actually after, after she made her first movie. She, uh, she had made the movie because her partner, I guess, was being alienated. And she was so upset about it, she did a movie about it. And then in the course of doing that, she realized she herself had been alienated and didn't know it, you know, even though she was doing a movie wow. about it. Um, so, but her advice on this panel was don't go on to social media and post a whole bunch of stuff about being an alienated parent. Don't go on and try to, um, you know, it, and it's so hard to do that because you want to get support, right? You want to go out and try to say, oh, look at this injustice that's happening to me. But believe me, your children are still looking they, they, they might use a different name on a Facebook account. They might do something, or a friend will share it with them. And alienated children do not like it when you're, they're being told they're being alienated because they don't see it. They think that you're awful <laughs> and that you're abusive or you're the devil. And if you're trying to tell me I'm being alienated, they don't see it at all. And so it's going to make it worse for you. So do not do that, you know, and so and her recommendation, and you, you can see this in, in the Erasing Family movie, one of the children is talking to her sibling, and she's just like, I'm not, I don't, I don't know why you keep saying I'm being alienated, you know, like, you know, they don't see it, 
right? You know, they don't see it when they're in it. Right. And so you're not going to reach them that way. Um, so if you do it, you know, sometimes parents will have an alias on Facebook. They won't have their actual thing and that'll be an outlet. Right. Um, but, you know, be very mindful of your public presence because your child on some level still wants to see you. Right? And they're going to be curious and look for you. But you don't want them when they find you on social media or on the internet to have more of a reason to hate you. Yeah, no, that's such a great um, point. I, I do have a very specific question for you when it comes to the Erasing Family movie or your TED Talk. What is your advice to the alienated parent if they have an older child and they want to show oh, them? No. <laughs> no. And in fact, a lot of times even when a parent will reunify with a child and bring up, you know, hey, let's talk about it. The last thing that child wants to do is talk about it. You know, and, and Ginger Gentile has said this too, like, you just want to move on with your life. You know, they acknowledge that it happened. You may have a few conversations about it, but to rehash everything and to go through it, a lot of times that is not what a child wants to do. So I think it's important that if you're listening that you hear that because I, I could see where I'd be like, okay, well, you know, let me let me just inform them. Let me sit down and watch it with them. And you just had such a strong negative reaction to that, Jennifer. And I just, I want our listeners to hear that. Like, don't go down that path. She's telling you, Jennifer's telling you, there's nothing positive in that. And I just want to also confirm in general, do not err anything about your divorce on on social media, um, not only if it's parental alienation, but in general, it's just, it's unwise and any attorney, any mental health expert is going to tell you that leave that private business private. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the, the point of the Erasing Family movie, if you'll watch it, um, Ginger Gentile designed it to, the, the target audience are young people, so college age. Um, and she did that intentionally. It's not, it's not created for social workers. It's not created for mental health providers or lawyers or other people. Her intent was to try to reach young people to see the stories of she follows three families where it happened and for them to see some parallels, right? And the, and the intent was for the stories themselves to help them come to the realization like, well, wait a minute, that kind of describes what's happening to me. So it's not meant right. to be an educational piece, like what is alienation and all that. It's more the intent of it is to try to reach those young people. Now, yeah, I would not sit down and say, hey, you know, you guys should watch this movie. <laughs> Don't do that to your kids. Um, but hopefully right. maybe a friend will show it to them or they go to college. You know, she's trying to do screenings at colleges, for example, where, you know, a professor will show it. Um or, you know, and I, I recommend, you know, I, I'm actually trying to do it where I show, give extra credit for my students who watch it, uh, write a paper on it. Um, but a lot of students, I mean, whenever I've given optional lectures on parental alienation, sometimes, you know, a, few, a handful of students will just get up and leave the room um, because they, it's mm -hmm. hard or they, they just say, oh, that's crap. That doesn't exist because the alienating parent told them it's not real. It's, <laughs> it's not a real thing or you know, don't tell me what to do or it's too hard. Um, I've had a lot of college students who work in my lab who had to drop out because the topic is too painful. Um, or they came to the realization about a year after doing research with me that, wait a minute, 
this has been happening to me. I don't even know it while I was doing the research. (laughs) That's how strongly, you know, that's how strong these beliefs are. And so, you know, like one had to drop out. She's like, I'm not dropping out. I I love the research. I love doing this, but it's so painful. And it reminds me of what's going on in my family. And it's not alienation, but there's just a lot of conflict in my family. And then a year later, she reached out and said, do you have any papers you've published? Because I'm beginning to think that actually that is what's going on. Yeah, that that's just that's heartbreaking to hear that the the just the level of psychological abuse that's happening, and then that young person to have to find their way to the consciousness that oh my god, this has been my experience. Um, such a such a tough such a tough situation, such a hard topic. Um, Jennifer, can you share, um, thank you so much for all of this information and for your time. How, how can our listeners reach out to you if they're interested? Um, I do have a website where I kind of post updates on things. It's just jenniferjillharmon.com, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, Jill, J-I-L-L, Harmon, H-A-R-M-A-N.com. Um, and there's my, there's like a contact me form on there. Um, I am a professor at Colorado State University, um, and so, and I do, I do kind of help out on some legal cases um, here and there as an expert. Um, my full-time job is a professor, so <laughs> my ability to do a lot of it is kind of restricted, um, but, and I can do a lot more help in the summer when I'm not teaching, sort of thing. But, um, but my contact information is there. Um, I try to post, you know, updates on articles and things that I've published, um, as well, so that people can kind of stay informed on, on different things. Um, I've started an institute at Colorado State University, a virtual institute for parental alienation. Um, that sh- it's, it's in the early stages of development, but we do have a website up. It's um, pa-vi.org, which stands for Parental Alienation Virtual Institute. Um, but the people who are part of that institute, we have three faculty from Colorado State University, and we have a lot of faculty from all over the world, such as Dr. Vittorio Vizzetti, who's a child psychiatrist in Italy, Mandy Mathewson, Dr. Mandy Mathewson from University of Tasmania, and so and Dr. Bill Burnett, uh, Dr. Damasana Florandos. And so we have people who've been publishing in this area a long time and are collaborating on research, um, and we're developing trainings. It would probably be another, you know, because of COVID, it's gotten delayed, but maybe another within another year, we'll have some trainings on there that are available online, um, designed mostly for mental health and legal professionals. Um, but, you know, parents can also do it if they just wanted to learn more. <laughs> um, but the, our goal is to try to hopefully get some literacy on this topic to as many mental health providers and um, legal professionals as we can. But, I think one of the biggest problems is a lot of times people don't know what they don't know, right? A lot of people think, well, I do, I do family law. So I run across all these cases or I see a family or I see therapists say, well, I've been able to treat, I know alienation when I see it, all this stuff. And I'm like, no, really, you missed it. It's right in front of you and you're missing it, you know, because they don't know what they don't know, right? They don't know the signs or they haven't read everything on it. Um, and I'm always impressed whenever I publish a paper when clinicians or lawyers reach out to me and ask for copies of the paper, because that tells me that they are actually staying informed and they are trying to do the best practice they can because they are, they're learning as much as they can. 
I wish. Well, and I think I think that one of the things, those of you who are listening, is educate yourself, and that way you can have these kinds of conversations with the professionals who are supporting you. And so, uh, most, if not all, of the resources uh, that Jennifer talked about during the show are in the show notes. Go there, um, peruse. Uh, print out, research, reach out and ask questions. Definitely get involved in a group if you can. A lot of groups these days are virtual, so you don't necessarily have to be in the same neighborhood. Um, and, uh, and, and definitely do your due diligence when you're hiring professionals. And, and get support, get coaching support, get therapeutic support, definitely get the support that you need so that you can show up as the healthier parent because that's all your kids have. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I so appreciate everything that you've shared. It's been, it's been incredible and I know it's going to help a lot of folks. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I guess my advice is for everybody, my sign off and all my emails is just hang in there. <laughs> it's not that easy. You're in a, it's a horrible position to be in if you're a parent dealing with this. Um, and I have a lot of parents too realize, oh my gosh, I've, I've been doing some of these behaviors. Um, if, if a parent's aware that they're doing it, chances are it hasn't gotten that bad. Usually they're probably in a loyalty conflict situation, but understand that, yeah, these behaviors that we've been talking about are not good to put these children in these situations. And so, um, but yeah, you're not alone if you're, if you're, being alienated and that's comforting, but also, you know, kind of sad too, that there's so many people who are dealing with this. And stay tuned because our next uh, episode is going in, in the high conflict series is going to be with a parent coordinator and the role that they play and how they can support you during and post divorce. So thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll, we'll be talking to you again next week. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon. At Journey Beyond Divorce, we know that sometimes the most powerful support we can offer is to help you process the storm of emotions you're experiencing and gently challenge the beliefs that are keeping you stuck. The way Karen delivers her program is that she validates the feelings, the emotions, the ups, the downs. She hones in on the specifics that really talk to that particular person when they're going through this crazy emotional time. Let us be a beacon in the midst of this crazy emotional time. Book a free lifeline call with us to help lift the fog and begin practicing new ways of thinking, being, and doing that better support you as you journey through and beyond divorce. Our gift to you is taking that first step with you on your free Rapid Relief Lifeline call, where we help you navigate the emotional and logistical turbulence of separation and divorce. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call.